We got there and we found out that most of the other founders didn't even have a product, didn't have revenue. And I think as first time founders, you never really know what traction is good traction until you can compare it relatively. Yeah. And all of the mentors there were very impressed and we were shocked that they were impressed because we didn't think we had anything like big. And they said, you girls need to quit your corporate jobs today and start fundraising ASAP because you have more traction than we had when we when we got funded. Yeah. yeah. So we were like, okay, you know what? I think this is a pretty good sign. Yeah. And a couple of months, like I think one to two months later, we both quit our jobs and went into it full time. Welcome to Two Sided, the Marketplace Podcast, brought to you by ShareTribe. Hello and welcome. I'm Stuart, CMO at ShareTribe, and I am your host. For this episode, I had the pleasure of talking to Trisha Bentique, CEO and co-founder of Queenly, an online marketplace for buying and selling formal dresses. Now, if you think another fashion marketplace, you could not be more wrong. Queenly's story is very, very different, not in the least because of Trisha's own story. It might be the most inspiring founder story I've heard so far. It's difficult to do it justice in this intro, and I'm not pretending I am. And we only go a little bit into it in the interview, but it is an incredible story of someone just overcoming one hardship after another. In short, Trisha was born in the Philippines, raised by her grandparents, immigrated to the U.S. at the age of 10, paid her way to college on her own, and now somehow ended up as the CEO and co-founder of a company backed by prestigious investors such as Y Combinator and Andreessen Horowitz. If that's not inspiring, then I don't know what is. If you want to know more about Trisha's story, uh, there are several videos and interviews online. I tried to focus mostly on the marketplace part of the story, but of course, the reason that I do bring it up here is because Trisha's story very much informs Queenly's story. For example, the idea of Queenly only exists because Trisha started competing in pageants in order to make money for her tuition at UC Berkeley and realized how expensive those dresses actually are. And the best reason, perhaps, to bring it up is that Trisha has learned how to hustle and persist and brought that attitude to Queenly. And this is a theme that keeps on recurring throughout this podcast when talking to founders. So many of my guests, especially in the early days, just put in the work. And much of the work is truly just manual, non-scalable labor. I do recommend listening, for example, how Trisha and her co-founder, Kathy, onboarded the first users. But we don't just talk about the hustle. We also talk about launching an app and getting absolutely no traction for months. We discuss the difficulty of being first-time founders, and especially women first-time founders, how hard that can be, how challenging it can be to talk to investors in a way that they understand your vision, and how to deal with incredible setbacks and turn them around. Overall, just truly an inspiring story for all of the marketplace founders and operators listening to this. I had a fantastic time listening to Trisha, and I hope you do too. Here's my interview with Trisha Bentik of Queenly. Hi, Trisha. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for taking the time for coming on. 
I don't know how much you listen to the podcast yourself, but what we usually do is try to set the stage a little bit, like who's talking. There's a lot of advice, you know, out there in the world, and usually what people forget is sort of the context in which it is delivered. So we always try to get a little bit to know about the person who's talking. So could you tell us a little bit about Trisha before Queenly? Ooh, okay. Trisha before Queenly. Let's see. I think Trisha before Queenly has always dreamed for more, even though, you know, I came from a very low income immigrant background. At the age of 10, I immigrated from the Philippines to Vegas. And then once I got into UC Berkeley, that's when I moved to San Francisco Bay Area. To which then I studied political science, which is not what I am doing today. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, but I think that's the beauty of it, right? Like you take on the journey to find yourself. And then I just got sucked into tech because that's what happens when you live here. I was able to work at Google, then Facebook, then Uber right before starting Queenly. So that really opened my eyes to just the tech industry. And and I fell in love with it. And then I started Queenly. All right. Queenly, if I put it in a nutshell, it's a marketplace to buy dresses, right? Like vintage, new, secondhand dresses. Yes. So we've been trying to more so coin the term like formal wear. I know it's a bit of a mouthful, but just because there's so many different things that technically are also not dresses, such as like glamorous jumpsuits and this and that, or, you know, ice skating, ballroom dancing, leotards, stuff like that. All right. Yeah. Thanks for clearing that up. And then between, you know, political science, Google, Facebook, Uber, then you jumped into Queenly. Can you tell us a little bit about how did idea came along? Like, how did you come across that idea? Are you the one who came up with the idea? Because you have a co-founder, right? Yes, yes. So could you tell us a little bit about how did that idea come to you? Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, I didn't have a lot of money growing up. And so a lot of things were not necessarily affordable or accessible to me. But, you know, just like any other normal teenage girl living in the United States, I dreamed of having that Cinderella moment at prom or at my wedding and this and that. But formal wear is very, very expensive. It can cost hundreds, if not thousands of dollars. And then at the same time, I couldn't pay for my very, very expensive tuition at Berkeley. So I started Googling ways how to make money. And I saw I could donate my plasma. I could join these medical research studies that would give you, (laughs) let's say, I've seen $200 those, yeah. for your time. Yeah. I took on a bunch of different jobs. And one of the ways that I found was actually competing in pageants. And this one kind of threw me off because never in a million years did I think I would join a pageant. But I thought to myself, okay, I don't do sports, so I can't do anything else. Yeah. <laughs> Let me try this out. How hard can it be? Yeah. It was very, very hard, but it ended up really breaking every stereotype that I had about the industry and frankly about the women there. But one thing was consistent was that the pain point of every single woman was finding the dress, affording the dress, then what do you do with it after? So I just started thinking, okay, like this not only happens in pageants, but it happens in prom, weddings, quinceaneras, galas, sorority formals, military balls, like anything. So I just started like itching inside of me that I wanted to create something. And I started bugging my now co-founder, my very good friend, Kathy Zoe, at Pinterest, and I told her about the idea, and she thought I was crazy. Okay, so how did you get her over the crazy part? Like, what was the initial pitch? Because you mentioned the, the pageantry background. Like, I don't know too much about that. Like, I'm not from the U.S. A lot of our audience is also not from the U.S. So, so how big is that as an industry? Like, how many women participate in that sort of, like, nationally? Like, what are we talking about? 
Right. So when I started digging deeper into it, because I didn't even like know how much bigger it was. So pageants in the U.S. are actually not the biggest around the world. It can even be bigger in like Venezuela, Colombia, Indonesia, Thailand, like they gather like gajillions of audiences, right? And we don't know this, but to them, this is similar to a sports competition event, right? There are fans. So in the U.S., there are at least about 100,000 independently operating pageant events that occurs every year. And that's because there's different levels. So there's local, state, national, then international. So similar to like little league, major league, right? And then there's going to be age divisions. So junior, teen, miss, missus, senior. So that's why it does like multiply a lot more. But the I did a crazier thing to convince her, which was I convinced her to join a pageant first before convincing her to be my co-founder. All right. So she could see it, the industry firsthand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so this is going to be sort of my follow-up question. Like, you've experienced that pain point yourself. Like, how did you sort of validate that? But actually, maybe you can tell a little bit. I mean, you need to validate more by just dragging Kathy along to a pageant. So she's a technical co-founder, right? Yes, correct. So she did CS at UPenn, and then she worked at, she was an early engineer at Venmo and also Pinterest. So she was very typical software engineer that doesn't do pageants. Yeah, yeah, no, makes sense. Yeah, because what I'm getting at is that, like, what was sort of the, um, obviously, I'm, I'm guessing you're talking a lot to other contestants, but what did you do sort of to validate the problem that you're like, okay, yeah, this is really a business, you know, who's going to buy it, like validating your market and your basic idea? Did you, how did you go about that? Yeah, so at first I was like, okay, I think I need to look at if there's existing options, existing platforms that already cater to this market, which one, it's very good that you see it, right? So I started seeing, you know, there's posts on Poshmark, Mercari, let's say Craigslist. And then I saw a lot of Facebook group marketplace that are specifically just for dress resale. There's even as specific as like Kentucky Derby dress resale. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. very specific. And there's hundreds of thousands of members and there are like a lot of activity every single day. So that validates that, OK, your problem, it exists. Right. And there is a need for it. But are these existing options satisfactory? Right. And I started seeing that there's a lot of scams. There were listings that were on there for more than two years on Poshmark. So liquidity was a problem. And just like safety and security was just simply non-existent for these customers. So that's when I started to see like, okay, you know what? I think there needs to be a centralized and more safer platform for this. Yeah, cool. Yeah, that makes total sense. I've heard similar story. Like Facebook groups are a surprisingly good sort of birth ground for marketplaces. This is not the first time in the podcast that I'm hearing this. Right. Um, then what was your first version? Like, like you already mentioned liquidity. I'd imagine that... A lot of it goes over posts, maybe, so or over mail, so you're not too maybe concerned with constraining it locally. But what was sort of the very first market that you entered or the very first sort of attempt at getting it out? So we started working on it late 2018. So building nights and weekends, we were still working our corporate jobs. And uh, we started with iOS, actually, and our web app was very, very basic. We had thought that, okay, most people have their photos on their mobile phones and not on the computer anymore. So it's a lot easier to be able to upload listings. So our first goal was to gain supply, right? We launched in the App Store around January 2019, 
and it was very, very ugly. Yeah. A lot of things were wrong, but I think that's the point of, you know, your, your MVP, you're trying things out and like, you can't expect to launch and everything be perfect. And our first version, we specifically focused on power users, which are at that time pageant users because they're used to reselling. They have to, you know, buy a lot in one year. And that's kind of like how we got the flywheel going. Yeah. And how did you get those people on board? I mean, okay, the app is in the app store, of course. Yeah. But what did you use to get the first people to download the app? It's not very glamorous. It's me manually messaging a lot of people. And I was lucky enough that throughout my eight years of competing in pageants, I have built a good amount of, you know, network, different groups all over the U.S., like women that I would have never met otherwise. And, you know, I was just trying to spread it word of mouth. And I was like very, very open to feedback. I would always engage with them saying like, hey, you know, we're here to make this better for you every single day. So anything that is broken, any feature you want, please communicate to me and we'll make it happen. Okay. Yeah. At what point did you sort of take the next step? So you get your initial users on board, like power users. It was very much targeted at pageants, like you're saying, and now you're doing quite many other sort of categories as well. At what point did you feel like, okay, this is, you know, like, well, actually coming back maybe to your corporate job, at what point you're like, oh, you know what, actually, I'm going to quit my job over this. Like what sort of convinced you? Was it like a transaction or like some kind of volume or do you have some kind of milestone that made you decide like, oh, actually not now I'm for real? Yeah, it was a combination of different positive green flags happening, you know, consecutively. So we had our first transaction, I believe it was May 5th, 2019. So from January to May, we didn't have anything. We regard to that as the dark ages of Queenly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's when we were like, should we give up? Is this yeah. like wanted? Is this working? Luckily, we did have the safety net of our job still, right? That summer, we were accepted into this startup workaway retreat by held by WeFunder, the company. And uh, we applied, we got in. It was a free one week retreat in Hawaii. So of course we would apply. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah if anything comes out of it, at least you're tanned, right? Exactly. Yeah. So they, uh, I think they accepted around 17 startup companies, startup founders. And me and my co-founder went, there were mentors there that had previously done startups. Uh, there were YC founders. So we had workshops, one-on-one -on -one mentorship, and just like being able to learn from one another. And at that point, we were already getting pretty like consistent transactions, maybe like two to five a day. And I know that doesn't sound like a lot, but it kept, you know, it was steadily increasing. We got there and we found out that most of the other founders didn't even have a product, didn't have revenue. And I think as first time founders, you never really know what traction is good traction until you can compare it relatively. Yeah. And all of the mentors there were very impressed and we were shocked that they were impressed because we didn't think we had anything like big and they said you girls need to quit your corporate jobs today and start fundraising asap because you have more traction than we had when we when we got funded yeah yeah so we were like okay you know what i think this is a pretty good sign yeah. and a couple of months like i think one to two months later we both quit our jobs and went into it full time 
Wow. Yeah, that is amazing. Because I was saying, like you were saying, like, oh, you know, I know that doesn't sound much, but, you know, like we, I work with early stage marketplace all the time, like two to five times a day is like, it's pretty much killing it early on. So that's really, yeah. really nice. Could we go a little bit back into the dark ages for a moment? Yes. So what did you figure out like during that time? Because like dark ages is a very common like uh, era that most marketplace founders go through, right? Like you put your first product out, you're sort of struggling with getting either supply or demand on board, or you get a bunch of things on board and then you know, absolute crickets. Like, how did you figure out what was the problem? Like, how did you go through that process? Like, how did you survive January to, to May? Ooh, that was actually, we were both really sad <laughs> during that time. Yeah. I think there were two things which, because I worked at Uber, I was able to understand more so this like two-sided marketplace of basically drivers and riders, right? And what I've learned from my then mentor, the CTO of Uber, Tuan Pham, was that it's always a balancing act. It's never like every single day it's different. This today you might need more drivers, tomorrow you might need more riders, right? And basically trying to figure out that chicken and egg problem. And uh, for us, we realized that if you're shopping, no matter what you're shopping for, and you put a search term and your search results gives you like two, maybe three results, the chances, the likelihood of you clicking purchase is very, very low. Now, if we're able to produce at least, I don't even know, 30 to 40 options for you, that gets higher. So we figured out, we were just like, we lack supply. So there was this magical like silver lining moment where we passed that boundary of, we had enough supply to please one user to produce one transaction. And so we just have to keep building supply over and over again, every single day. Like there's never enough supply especially for fashion, because, you know, women are very uh, indecisive when it comes to shopping most of the time. The other one was that we kept listening to our users. I think that by the time that a user would get on and not experience multiple crashes and have the feature that they wanted to make that purchase timeline shorter, that's when we were able to get that magical transaction. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, especially because supply is kind of like different per type of marketplace. But I can see that indeed with dresses, you want to have this, you know, because like coming back to your Uber experience, for example, Uber users generally don't care who's there. Like you don't need to know how many cars are available. Just like I need one, right? But yes. but with fashion, but with fashion, of course, you want to be able to pick for more than two like that. That makes sense. Yeah, cool. So first transaction we've got there getting the first people on board. What has been the biggest growth levers on supply side? So you mentioned you need, you know, you know, you need more supply. Like at what point did you sort of go beyond your own network, like towards a channel where you were attracting people you didn't know personally? Yeah, so supply is very tricky, like what you've mentioned with any type of marketplace, because it's it's very different how sellers or suppliers react and act, right? Yeah. For us, like I said, we started with power users who could upload at least five dresses, right? Okay. Yeah. And that is sort of like the average we have today. And so I would say I did a lot of things such as me and my co-founder created basically a script to scrape Poshmark listings and Facebook or marketplaces that would copy and paste. Like, you know, we would comment saying like, oh my goodness, like this dress is so beautiful. Like... Have you ever tried listing it on Queenly? Like we would always just like name drop Queenly and we would like make it seem, we would make it seem like it was a genuine 
<laughs> comment, right? You know this goes public, right? Like, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I think other founders have done way shadier stuff. 100%. Yeah. 100%, yeah. So I'm owning up to it. Yeah. But yeah, and then I think that the word of mouth is really strong. Never underestimate that. And with the power of social media, whenever someone, if someone is really, really happy with a you know, an experience through a platform, they will share about it, right? Especially if it's a brand that is very relatable and not complicated, I would say. Um, yeah, so posting it on social media, other girls would ask about it and say like, oh, like what is what is Queenly? Like what is this platform? So it just kind of garnered more. And especially because, you know, it's a free app. It's a free platform. We don't charge anything to download, to be on there or to list. Whereas uh, predecessors of like, let's say marketplaces, they would charge listing fees. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Like, I especially imagine like early days, pageantry, it's like a pretty tight community. You see probably the same women over and over, you know, kind of who you can trust and not. So I can see that word of mouth thing, like really happening. And what you said, like that sort of, uh, you must know Lenny Rzitsky, right? Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. So he mentions in his very famous blog series on marketplaces, these different ways of growing a marketplace and this sort of, he calls it very nicely, like a piggybacking on existing data, I believe. But that's really what, you, what you're saying, right? Like where you sort of take pretty much <laughs> take data from somewhere and you try to sort of wrap it in your own platform or at least write the supply from that existing platform. Uh, that's awesome. Did you do anything in particular to motivate this word of mouth? So you mentioned like word of mouth is a big sort of power loop for you. Like, did you do anything to sort of incentivize that more? Yes. So I would always check in every single time a seller has successfully sold something or a buyer has purchased something that they're happy with and ask them about their experience and thank them for using Queenly. So we always focus on this very like white glove customer service experience, right? We want it to be better than existing platforms. And, you know, you're supposed to do things that don't scale in the beginning anyways. And then uh, I would incentivize them with a Starbucks gift card. Yeah. <laughs> so if you post on social media, I'll give you $10 Starbucks gift card. I mean, it may not be much, but for them to just make one post, you know, to get a pumpkin spice vanilla latte. Yeah. I was going to say, like, know your target market. That's probably like, that's probably yeah. the one that really lands. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And in the like, that's when I started finding out, wow, Queenly has attracted a lot of moms, a lot of moms that are power users, that have the purchasing power, that love Starbucks. So that's how I kind of like did it. That makes sense. Yeah. We talked about pageantry, pageantry dresses. Uh, you mentioned in the beginning you're doing like form, you sort of shifted to formal wear now. At what point did you think like, oh, we're going to step beyond this pageantry scene and products? What was the first one, for example? So I think in the beginning, most investors didn't really understand that you are supposed to focus on a very small portion of the market in the beginning to not overcrowd yourself, right? Overwhelm your your capabilities. But they were so stuck on like, oh, they're only doing pageants. It's a niche, small market. Even though I was pitching, we're going to expand to every single formal wear occasion event, like everything. And so we tried really hard to make sure that by the end of the year, as we were pitching for a pre-seed round, we avoided the term pageant at all costs because they just get tunnel visioned on it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one motivator. And then November, December, we knew that prom season was coming. In the U.S., actually, most people don't know this, but 
prom industry alone is a four billion dollar market every single year. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> every single year, and that's only like I believe like seventy five percent of that cost is the dress because it's expensive. So December we started prepping because we started seeing activity online where. Teenage girls are shopping, looking for prom dresses, and this generation—let's you know, obviously Gen Z—they're a lot more socially conscious about their purchases, so they they love sustainability. So that's when we were like, okay, let's make this happen for prom, and we started just ramping up December and January into getting the supply for prom and reaching out to more like high schoolers, high school influencers, slash content creators, and this kind of like. How we started expanding into other markets. Yeah, and so now you cover because you also recently acquired a company, right? Like you, because you're a relatively young company yourself. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I did not expect to have an acquisition this early, just because it, it the term of it was so intimidating, and I didn't know anything about it. But the opportunity came on the table where we had a mutual investor that was connecting us. Initially, it was I thought it was going to be for a partnership, but during the call, she let us know that she was putting it up for sale. Right, like she wanted to leave. She had some personal extenuating circumstances that prevented her from running the company any further, and because it was kind of like she was now like disinterested. She just needed to take care of her family. We were able to get it for a very good price that a small company like us would be able to afford. And we knew we knew that the Hispanic community in the United States is ever growing, and quinceañeras are one of the biggest events that they spend a lot of money on. And there's not a lot of platforms online or any apps or tech companies that cater to them. And so we knew we we needed to get it. Yeah. What was the name of the company again? Because I think we didn't mention that. Oh yes, the company is called Mi Padrino,、um, yeah. which I believe is like my godfather. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And so you suddenly just bought yourself a whole new category for the marketplace, pretty much. Or were you serving that already before? We were, but we didn't have as much supply, right? Because we、okay. didn't have that reach, and I think that was the main reason we wanted to acquire it because they had the reach, they had the branding, they had the community. That we needed, and you know, me and my co-founder, we don't have Hispanic heritage, so it was harder for us to kind of build that up within that community. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, you've really like taken all the ways to really sort of kickstart supply, like of the menu, like acquiring supply, piggyback. Oh, really、yeah. cool. Yeah, really cool. Then you mentioned a little bit about investors, like so you were fundraising. Did you say end of two thousand nineteen? Did I get that right? Or yes, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So, who did you end up、uh, getting funding from, or how how did that go? Because you've had raised how many rounds now? Oh, we've raised. I guess we're on our third one right now. Yeah. So, how was your experience fundraising? Because indeed, like it's a very sort of you know, like you mentioned already, that the VC world is famously not particularly diverse, especially not like towards these type of products. So they're really skeptical. How was your experience with fundraising for Queenly? Yeah, so I would say, and I think a lot of your audience would agree that the pre-seed round is definitely the toughest. This is because this is when you need to prove the most, and you know, with today's inflated market, they expect the most at the very early stages already. And my personal mistake was thinking I should go to big VC firms first. Because I was so overly ambitious, that, like yeah, like we have a good product, we have good credentials, founder market fit, good traction. We should be able to like pitch this well. 
that was not the case and I wasted a lot of time going to, you know, let's say like Bain or Greylock and etc. I was fortunate enough that I've been able to network quite effectively when I was at Uber. So our first checks in were the CTO of Uber, the chief product officer of Uber, and then from you know our mentors at the WeFunder trip, they were former founders. Oh, we also got the our former bosses at the startup that my co-founder and I met at. So we met in 2014 as interns and we approached them saying, hey, we started a company. <laughs> remember us? Yeah, cool. Yeah, remember us? I soon found out that like, okay, you know what? At this stage, it doesn't matter if I have a big name. I just need the money because I got to build and I got to just like prove ourselves. But one institutional VC came in at the very last minute and gave us our first institutional check, which is the house fund at UC Berkeley. So God bless them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Is there anything in there? Like you already mentioned, like don't climb up the hill and start from the biggest first. Like, what, is there anything else you feel like, oh, we would have been much more effective? Like uh, you mentioned the pageantry, uh, like dropping that from the pitch. Is there anything else you feel like, oh, you know, for people out there fundraising right now, like what did you wish, you know, you're a first time founder yourself. What did you wish people told you in that process? Yeah, so I wish that I had learned earlier on, which would have saved me a lot of heartache <laughs> over the process, was that it's a numbers game, especially, you know, your pre-seed, your seed. Don't get too focused on your your dream VCs, your dream like investors to invest in you, because I did. I had a lot of these like famous female VCs whom I looked up their bios. I thought, okay, she does consumer marketplaces. She did this company. She would understand my market and, you know, more than anyone else. I reached out to them and some I even had multiple warm intros to and they all either said no right away, didn't even give me one meeting, uh, ghosted me. And you know what? If I would have saved a lot more time if I just like took that as like, okay, you know what? Let's move on to the next one. There's there's still more yeah. investors and Yeah, there's no personal thing here. Yeah. Just like next. Yeah, thank you, next. That's great advice. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, because you have so much invested early on also in your thing that you're like, you know, it's like people telling your child is ugly or something. Like like yeah. there's no way to to get over that. Yeah. Cool. Cool. So now you have several funding rounds under your multiple categories. How do you maintain quality for a marketplace? Because like, of course, this is so important that, you know, that the quality of the supply is good, that the dress appears uh, at the door in the shape it's in, that nobody's getting ripped off. Like, how do you maintain quality? Yes. Yeah, so this is very, very important, especially for a marketplace with high priced inventory, right? And for inventory that has a lot of emotion tied to the purchase, right? A wedding is very important to a person, even their prom, let's just say. So you can either make them really happy or really mad at you. <laughs> so we've built a lot of things. So we figured out that transparency is key in terms of making customers happy, because if you know exactly what you're getting before it gets there, where's the complaint, right? Like you knew exactly what you're getting. And a lot of people, you know, they know when you're going to resale that it's not brand new from Macy's or Nordstrom, right? But you get it at like, let's say 30 to 70% off its retail price. So that is the bargain. For us, one thing that we've implemented in the app is that anything under $500, we do a quality check via the app. 
It's basically providing proof photos right before shipment. So sellers are required to take real-time proof photos before packaging it and shipping it out in order to prove the condition that it's in currently instead of like uploading a picture from three years ago and then it comes out dirty like to the buyer. I got this idea from Get Around. Okay. <laughs> that yeah. rental car place. Yeah, I know, I, I know. Yeah, yeah. it's like, yeah. well, bef- that makes sense. Before you get into car, you take a picture to prove that this damage was not yours or yeah. that it's there. Yeah, yeah. So that's what we I do. I love and that. Yeah, <laughs> fantastic application of that idea. Cool. Yeah, so it works for dresses. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Yeah, awesome. And and what else? Like, is there uh, insurance involved, for example? Like, and I, I assume you have some form of escrow, I'd imagine, like that the money doesn't move until the... Do you have those kind of things in in there? Yes. So basically right now, buyers are able to dispute the item up to three days. So let's say it came in the condition that it like, you know, there's some missing gems or beads or it's not the right size, wrong color. So we give them three days after delivery to file a dispute claim or refund claim, right? And then, but if there's nothing wrong with it, they click accept in the app and then they write a review, very, very common. And then that's when we release the earnings to the seller. If that buyer fails to accept it within three days, it automatically gets accepted, right? And then the seller gets the earnings. Yeah. And so talking about earnings, how does Queenly monetize? What is your model like? Yeah, at the moment, we take a 20% commission take rate off of every transaction. And uh, I think this is very standard amongst like marketplaces. And we are in the process of changing it to a tiered commission structure where I'm just going to make up numbers. Let's say $50 to 500 is 20%. 501 to 1500 is 23%, you know, something like that. Uh, we got this advice from the CEO and founder of The Real Real, Julie Wainwright. So she is our first and only official advisor. So she's she's been a great advisor. I was looking up a little bit about, or I was looking up quite a bit about Queenly. Yeah. There's many interesting stories there. Uh, one of them I'd be really, really interested if you, if you don't mind speaking about that, because I have a growth background and for ShareTrap also we do, the majority of our people come through organic. You told a story about a copyright troll that abused the DMCA policy and just got 50% of your organic traffic like just, just killed. Like, Could you tell us about that? Because that sounds awful. Yes. Uh, Oh, that was like super stressful for all of us here, like my whole team beginning of the year. And so and what's even more annoying about it is that at the moment, copyright law in the United States allow for this to happen to a lot of companies. Right. There's like this loophole. So around February, March, we started getting multiple emails from Google DMCA saying we violated something and, you know, X, Y, and Z links were taken down, like they had to be automatically taken down until it's disputed. But when I say multiple, over 6,000 of our links were taken down. And each one was like an individual listing, right? So that hurt us a lot, especially when we've been trying to grow our SEO and our web traffic the best way possible. In the beginning, I kept reaching dead ends. We inquired with a couple of uh, legal firms on this, including our own counsel. And a lot of them were like, you know, this is tricky because like technically like the law is made to to side with that copyright holder. So basically this DMCA troll, he or she was representing 
these designers who had stock images that our users were using to upload, right? And so our loophole was that there's a you know, DMCA safe harbor where it's like, hey, we didn't upload this, our users did, and we'll give, you know, if you tell us which links, we'll tell them to take it down. Yeah. But yeah. they, you know, they had that route, yeah. um, which is, uh, and we did have that DMCA safe harbor into our terms of service online, which they did not follow. <laughs> they just automatically reported us to Google and took it down. And so this is how the lawyer decided that like, hey, I think we could fight this in a way where they're bad actors with intentionally you know, harming your business. Yeah. yeah, because it did harm our business. Yeah, of course. Yeah, because oh. if they had just reached out to us, we would be like, hey, you know what? We'll take it down and our SEO wouldn't have been affected. But this took months and I had multiple people working on this. I had the Andreessen team working on this with us and we kept reaching like dead ends. And it wasn't until I took things, the matter into my own hands and I went on LinkedIn and I just like put in Google copyright counsel and I messaged every single one of them letting them know our situation thankfully miraculously one responded she took me seriously and she realized that like okay yeah we'll do like a mass dispute because the way that it's set up is that you have to individually submit per link there's no way I would be able to submit like you know that is like they're intentionally doing this so uh, what she did was she was able to do one for me, like so one for all. We submitted our evidence and everything. They approved it. A couple weeks later, our links were back up. Thankfully, she recognized that we were the type of business to get hit by this again. And they were able to whitelist queenly.com from these trolls. Oh, that's terrific. Yeah, man, because I was reading that and I just, I mean, I couldn't even imagine that that happening. It was so bad. <laughs> yeah. And then similarly, I mean, like, well, let's try to end on a high later, but, but uh, <laughs> how did COVID affect Queenly? Because you started like sort of just on the, you know, like 2019, let's say a year before. I imagine that a lot of these things have to do with events. So were you impacted by COVID? Yes, of course. I think a lot of non-COVID companies, let's just say, were, were quite affected. And for a couple of months, we didn't know what to do, just like many other people. Luckily... We had just raised our pre-seed round of 500K right beforehand, and we didn't overspend. We didn't hire like engineers. So we didn't have like a payroll. We didn't get an expensive office lease. We don't carry our own, like we don't carry the inventory. So, you know, our overhead cost is very yeah, low. That helps. Yeah. So I lot. said, okay, you know what? We just have to weather the storm. We just have to get through this. And our investors will understand that growth is very limited at this time. But then I realized, okay, I think if we can't push demand, because obviously there's a lockdown, why don't we push for more supply? Let's create the largest supply of formal wear online that the U.S. has ever seen. And I realized that, okay, a lot more women have more time at home cleaning out their closets, right? being able to list it online that's one a lot more content creators were you know doing tiktok dances at home and like looking good and wearing dresses and then uh lastly i saw that a lot of the brick and mortar stores that carried you know dresses such as bridal shops prom dresses were getting hit similar to restaurants i found out that most of these stores 99% of them, they're just so traditional, so old school that they are strictly offline, meaning they had no way of making revenue. So that's when I started reaching out to all of these small businesses and letting them know, hey, let us help you 
you know, supplemental revenue to get you through COVID. And if you like the service, you know, please continue working with us. And most of these mom and pop shops were ran by people that don't know tech. People, they don't know what Shopify is. They don't know what a Square POS is. So it really had to take from me to personally reach out to them, such as this woman. Her name is Carol. She's been running her store for 30 years in Alabama. And she don't she doesn't know right how this works but we were able to get her through the pandemic by by getting her some revenue online so that's how we uh, got through covid yeah because that's why i sort of might ask my question with a little bit of doubt because i'm thinking like yeah on the one hand of course like a lot of your events where people would need these are being hit but on the other hand like especially fashion had like a huge huge like e-commerce like boom kind of and i got to imagine exactly like what you're describing that okay, you, you, you lose part of the market, but at least you suddenly get this market which no longer goes to brick and mortar stores. So I, I wasn't sure like how, how it would pan out for you. But yeah, but it sounds like you really sort of hustled your way through this, like really, really <laughs> impressive. Yeah. So what's next for Queenly? Like I've taken up a lot of your time. So I just want to know like, what's the next step? So formal wear, what's next? Yeah, so I guess continuing on that effort that we did throughout COVID, we called that Queenly Partners. So it's pretty much an extension of Queenly. So prior to that, we were just simply C2C or peer-to-peer model, secondhand resale. Now we're bringing in businesses, right? So it's going to be B2B2C. And now we're bringing in brand new inventory. So I, I think this has happened with other marketplaces, such as like Goats and StockX, right, or Grilled. And so we started learning more about that side of the business, right? The supplier side, like business supplier side. And I didn't know that they were operating in the 1950s where they took inventory. Some of them took inventory by paper, cash. They didn't have like a a robust POS or inventory system. It was just so bad. Like they relied on foot traffic, right? And I realized this is an opportunity for us to help them and simultaneously grow our business as well by creating an inventory management system for them that also provides day-to-day, like real-time data analytics. So what colors are being chosen? They didn't have that before, right? Like, how are you able to track what people are like getting in store? What was being clicked? What was being saved? What was being sent to their friends? What kind of silhouette was getting popular? So we realized we really have this opportunity to create, I guess you would call it like, a SaaS product for them, right? And um, I, alongside it, probably, you know, have some kind of like, I don't even know, like financial product and POS product for them because, you know, if at this point, 2022, Square, Clover, and, you know, any kind of POS didn't reach them yet, like that means they were not being catered to. So that's one. I think we have an opportunity to provide more access to this inventory, which was previously offline. Now we are uh, trying to build um, video uploading capabilities because that's what's popular, right? It just takes a lot of data storage, but you know what? It should be worth it. We are looking into, uh, or we have already built our reverse image search feature. We're just filing a patent for it right now. So I guess it's a bit like we can't launch it yet, but basically it's a capability of taking a photo of a dress that you found on Instagram or or Pinterest, uploading it onto Queenly and us matching it with the exact same dress or very similar dresses that you can purchase right away. 
because a lot of women, you know, they don't know how to describe the technical terms for dresses. Yeah, of course. That makes total sense. Sometimes a girl, um, let's say a 17-year-old girl going to prom, she sees Beyonce at the Met Gala and she says, I want to look like that for prom, and, but how do you search for it? So that's what's next. Oh, that's so great. Yeah, super. Sounds really, sounds all super promising. Is there anything, if you need to give like one piece of advice to 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 starting marketplace entrepreneurs, maybe especially into B2C or these sort of like, let's say the less obvious marketplaces like yourself, what would you give this person? I would say, one, don't listen to naysayers when, you know, they think that you're your market is too small, too niche, because this was said to Airbnb, this was said to StockX, this was said to a lot of things, right? But as long as you are passionate and you know a lot about that, you know, that product, that market, it's going to work for you. Just keep going because, you know, I think too often that a lot of people start marketplaces on, on markets that they don't know anything about. Right. And that's when you kind of reach dead ends and that's when you can give up easily. And that's when you limit yourself. But if you truly know this product, no matter what it is, I don't know if it's if it's camping or I don't know, cooking marketplace, as long as you're very passionate about it, there is a market there. Yeah. All right. That's terrific advice. Tricia, thanks a lot for your time. And I wish you all the best with Queenly. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciated this conversation. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening to Two-Sided, the Marketplace podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, don't forget to subscribe. If you listen on iTunes, we'd also love for you to rate and give us a review. If you got inspired to build your own marketplace, go visit www.sharetribe.com. It's the fastest way to build a successful online marketplace business. Until next time.